Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. I don't really have anything to say at the top of the episode. I'm doing this one in like a fast turnaround from the last one, because I maybe did not plan my return to podcasting as well as I could have. It's fine. We'll be fine. But you know, if there's like a week where there's not an episode suddenly, it's because I rushed into coming back without having a backlog of episodes to share. So it's fine. I did this to myself. Let's get started. This time, we are talking about Solaris by Stanislaw Lem. Here is the summary. When Chris Kelvin arrives at the planet Solaris to study the ocean that covers its surface, he finds a painful, hitherto unconscious memory embodied in the living physical likeness of a long-dead lover. Others examining the planet, Kelvin learns, are plagued with their own repressed and newly corporeal memories. The Solaris Ocean may be a massive brain that creates these incarnate memories, though its purpose in doing so is unknown, forcing the scientists to shift the focus of their studies and wonder if they can truly understand the universe without first understanding what lies within their own hearts. Solaris was published in 1961 in Polish. It was translated into French in 1964 and from French into English in 1970. Our author, Stanisław Lem, was born in the Second Polish Republic in 1921, which is now part of Ukraine. He started his writing career in 1946, and his early works were heavily censored by the Stalinist government of the time. He was a prolific writer, however, publishing novels and essays which were translated and published in over 40 countries. Lem died in 2006. In 2021, Poland declared it the Year of Lem, where they celebrated Stanisław Lem and published new copies of his works and had a new authorized biography of him published, which I thought was pretty cool. Like I mentioned, this book was originally published in Polish. It was translated into French by Jean-Michel Yasiensko, whose name I am probably mispronouncing also, uh, and that was in 1964, and from French into English by Joanna Kilmartin and Steve Cox in 1970. I wish I had known how the translations shook out before I read this book, because instead of reading the original translation into English, I would have tried to find... There's a there's a new translation, new-ish, from 2011, which was translated directly from the Polish, and I would have much rather read that than this one, which is a translation of a translation. And, like, science fiction already has a lot of complicated words and thoughts that need to be made understandable to a new audience. I can't imagine trying to go from Polish to French and from the French translation of the Polish book into English. Like, now I want to go find the new version and read it, like, right now. 
but apparently there are legal issues preventing the newer translation from appearing in print. I did find that you can find it as an audiobook or an ebook. But yeah, finding out that whole train of translation, no wonder Lem was disappointed in the English translation of Solaris. That's something that I came across in almost every article I read about the book Solaris. Like, Lem was disappointed in the translation. So, anyway, I'm just going to say, like, if you want to read this book, try to find the 2011 translation, which was by Bill Johnston. Now, I'm going to let go of the translation woes. I'm going to let it go. I'm letting it go right now. Okay, content warnings in this book for lots of talk of suicide. So this book is set on a planet far, far away. Solaris, our titular planet, orbits two suns, a red one and a blue one. When scientists first discovered the planet, they predicted that due to the two suns, to gravity, whatever, however gravity works, they predicted that it would have an erratic orbit. Against all laws of physics and against every previously observed phenomena, however, Solaris actually has an extremely stable orbit. Scientists are baffled, to say the least. Closer observations reveal that Solaris is covered by a strange ocean, for lack of a better word. The hypothesis is that the ocean is somehow exerting control over the planet, stabilizing its orbit, which is, first off, super cool. I love that for me. I love a sentient planet-sized ocean brain. But the word ocean is misleading. It's just the closest word that we humans have to explain it. And Lem talks about this later in the book, saying that part of the difficulty in studying Solaris is that we have no analog to it on Earth. The preconceptions of Earth offer no assistance in unraveling the mysteries of Solaris. And a good portion of this book is dedicated to explaining the different theories humans have come up with to explain Solaris, how it does what it does, and how none of those theories hold up over time. I didn't really care that much about the history of solaristic thought. There sure was a lot of it. The hundred-year history of humanity's study of Solaris does, however, serve to highlight humanity's obsession with this planet and their determination to understand it to understand it so that they can hopefully someday communicate with it. But how do you learn how to communicate with something that is so alien you don't even have a word to express what it is? This idea of being unable to communicate with something truly alien is something that pops up over and over in Lem's writing, apparently. And like one of the characters says in this book, contact with the ocean. As I see it, the problem is basically very simple. Contact means the exchange of specific knowledge, ideas, or at least of findings, definite facts. But what if no exchange is possible? 
If an elephant is not a giant microbe, the ocean is not a giant brain. So the hundred-year history of humans wondering just what is up with Solaris is the backdrop for our main character Chris Kelvin's arrival on Solaris Station. The study of Solaris has been dropping off in recent years, people beginning to lose interest in a place they can't decipher, despite a hundred years of theorizing and observing. But for now, there is still a human presence on Solaris, and Kelvin has been invited to join them. His shuttle lands at the station, and he is expecting to meet fellow scientists engaged in study. Instead, he finds one scientist dead, one has locked himself away, and one is drunk and acting very strange. He treats Kelvin like an unwelcome ghost rather than an expected visitor. It's not exactly the ideal introduction to your home for the next however long. And so we begin with Kelvin alone trying to unravel what's been happening on this station and to these scientists. And the station is strangely empty. Everything is covered in dust. Rooms have been ransacked. Kelvin finds strange notes and hears strange sounds. I think sci-fi lends itself naturally to horror, especially space exploration sci-fi, and that is certainly the case here. You're isolated, far from home and the safety it represents, unknown dangers abound, and in this case, your fellow humans cannot be relied on. They might be the most dangerous thing on this alien planet. And then the ghost appears. Not literally a ghost. She's flesh and blood, but that might actually be worse because she's the exact image of a dead woman, Rhea. Rhea, who killed herself ten years ago on Earth. Kelvin reacts to this just about as well as you might expect, shoving her into a shuttle and launching her into orbit. He then spends the rest of the day subjecting himself to tests to see if he's hallucinating. It would almost be a relief for Calvin if he was going insane or hallucinating. Instead, he proves himself, sadly, sane. The next day, the shuttle is still gone, but Rhea appears again with no memory of the previous day, and Kelvin launching her into space. Kelvin is, initially, extremely freaked out. But he gradually comes to believe that he's been given an opportunity to make up for his past mistakes, to start over again with Rhea. Because part of this is that he believes it was his fault that Rhea killed herself ten years ago. And I just want to have, like, a brief sidebar here. If there was, like, one thing I could make older sci-fi writers do retroactively, if I could go back and rewrite a bunch of books, I would make them stop writing teenagers as the love interests of their inevitably much older male protagonists. Rhea was 19 when she died and Kelvin makes a reference to having lived with her for several years. 
to be fair, which I try to be, though I know my success varies, I can understand what he's getting at here. I can understand it and still not like it, okay? Part of this story is about how young and naive Rhea was, how Kelvin didn't take her seriously, and how he should have known better, and how his guilt over his actions toward her drives his decisions. And in absolute fairness, I don't actually know how old Kelvin is. But I'm pretty sure he's much older than her, because another thing I don't like happened in this book, which is when characters in a romantic relationship have conversations about one of them being a child compared to the other one, or one of them is constantly thinking of the other as childlike. I don't like it. Please stop. Okay, sidebar over. We can carry on. I've expressed my feelings. Once Kelvin accepts the revenant Rhea, he finds out that the other two scientists are also being visited by shades from their past. We never actually meet the other visitors, as they're called. I wish we had. Not because the story needed it, just because I'm nosy and like to know things. The other scientists, Sartorius and Snow, are trying to find a way to destroy the visitors for good. Every other attempt to rid themselves of the visitors has been useless. They just return the next day, memories wiped clean of any previous encounters. And Kelvin, instead of working with his fellow scientists, begins to clash with them. He is unable to stomach losing Rhea again, unable to face the fact that she's somehow a creation of Solaris brought to life by the planet-sized ocean brain for an unknown and perhaps unknowable purpose. Near the end, there are long time jumps. Weeks would pass where before we were tracking almost every hour. It was a little jarring, but I think it did help convey Kelvin's changed attitude from the beginning of the book. The other scientists alternate between trying to communicate with Solaris and trying to destroy the visitors. Kelvin, however, ignores their efforts, fools himself into believing that he can have Rhea back, that he can erase his past mistakes. He ignores every issue, tries to pretend nothing is wrong. But he can't maintain the illusion. Rhea won't let him. She has ideas of her own, and she doesn't want to live the lie, to continue pretending that everything is fine now, that nothing was ever wrong to begin with. And at the end, without going into too much detail on how it ends, Kelvin is alone again, and left with more questions about Solaris than ever. They've learned some things. But over and over in this book, what we see is that they learn what Solaris can do without being able to understand the why of it. It's like, yes, this planet can create perfect models of people we once knew, can create them out of our memories and bring them to life. 
But we don't know why. We don't know what the point is. And that makes it terrifying. Like the planet has done to countless scientists, it captures Kelvin in its mystery. Now, while this book is ostensibly about exploring a strange new world, it's pretty clear that the strange world Lem was exploring was the human mind. We have a long history, after all, of examining and exploring what it means to be human through fiction. I do love me a science fiction with themes and topics to twist your brain like a pan-galactic gargle blaster, so... It was a good time. Overall, I liked it. I had some complaints, obviously, about the whole Rhea being 19 situation. For me, the constant explanations on schools of thought about Solaris, their evolution and eventual decline, was a bit much. I found my focus wandering a lot. As I'm thinking about this book, though, I think those were necessary pieces of it. I don't think it would have been as good of a book without those things in it. And just like Lem's many, many fictional scientists, I found myself drawn in by the unknowable ocean. Lem knew exactly what sort of place would intrigue humanity and keep us coming back over and over. And I can feel it. I can feel the pull of the mystery of Solaris, the unknowable planet with its ocean brain. It's planet-sized ocean brain. Now think about that one for a long time, you guys. This book has been on my radar for many years. I'm glad I finally picked it up and read it. I borrowed a copy from my library, but I wouldn't be surprised if I decided to pick up a copy, especially if I can find the 2011 translation, from my own shelf someday. If you want more media like this, there are a couple of movies based on the book. I watched the 2002 version, and it was good. It was a contemplative sci-fi movie and kind of spooky. Also, I'm pretty sure I've recommended it before, but The Hainish Cycle by Ursula Le Guin is also good, which is convenient because next time I should be talking about one of the books from that cycle. So join me next time to hear about The Telling by Ursula Le Guin. As always, you can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it, or just share it with a friend. You can find the pod on Facebook, Backlog Books Podcast, and at backlogbooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.